You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. It's Saturday. It's 5 o'clock. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty hungry. How are you doing, Maroki Tong? I'm doing great, Andre Pru. I, too, am hungry on a Saturday. And I am ready for some appetizers. And then I can roll into dinner. What have you got for appetizers lined up? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's the thing, right? Like, I'm, I'm, I've kind of done this new thing, Andre. Where when we come into Saturday, I'm like, maybe I'll just like learn something new today, and then I'm gonna go eat that thing once we um, finish the show. So, but, but that being said, um, my oh. folks are actually coming to Toronto in a week. Right on. Um, they they live in the states now, and they're in Arizona, very specifically. And let's just say that. Arizona is not necessarily the most Chinese centric when it comes to cuisine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know what? Um, when I drove through Arizona, so quite a few years ago, I sold a piece on Route six, uh, about Route sixty six that was to one of the Toronto Star um, uh, newspapers, Metro, that's no longer around. And um, when I drove through Arizona, I, I don't know why I didn't click into or clue into this sooner. You can get a really good burrito in Arizona because there is a huge, uh, very large Mexican community down in those southern states, those border states, Arizona and New Mexico. I mean, you are absolutely correct. Um, I most certainly get my burrito and taco fix when I'm down there, as well as my tequila and mezcal fix. I would say I got into mezcal <laughs> tequila specifically because they just have an amazing selection there. But Why does that just... not surprise me about you? <laughs> We're, we're food and drinks people, Andre, okay? I'm not just <laughs> exclusive to wine. Gotcha. Anyway, so your parents are coming home to, to Toronto, and it, it sounds like they're jonesing for uh, a taste of home. Oh, my God. When they come home now, we basically can rarely eat at home because they just want to go out and eat all the things. Because, you know, the thing is with Chinese food is that some things are just easier prepared not at home. Like, there's, it, it, if you think about it, like, I know people tend to affiliate Chinese food with dim sum, Dim sum from scratch is not easy to make. You're much better <laughs> off just going to a really good dim sum restaurant. But there's so many other foods, you know, Chinese food out there that is just more than, let's say, dim sum or wonton soup or well, fried I, rice. I, I think even then, like, you know, you and I have spent a lot of time in Toronto, but this transmitter goes far and wide. I think it's still something with a lot of Canadians um, that when you think about Chinese food, you're still thinking of like General Tso's chicken and chicken balls as well. So head to the head to the core or up to Markham if you want to experience a whole different level. Or um, I want to hesitate from using the word authentic because I, I think the um, the word authentic can be applied to the whole Canadian Chinese food that has been um, developed out of necessity for a lot of reasons. But you're talking about I guess, home cooking, like from China, from Asia, not developed in North America, right? Or even like diversity, right? Like yeah. It's like, you know, if you think about certain different cultures of food, it's like if we said all Japanese food is sushi or if Italian yeah. food is only pizza and pasta, right? There is so much more variety out there. There's 2 billion plus people in China and multiple provinces. There's definitely going to be different cooking styles. I actually really love that we're going to unpack this because... I have really fallen in love with Southeast Asian cuisine over the past few years. Like I make a really great pho broth that uh, when I made it and sent some to my Vietnamese friend's mother, she told me that my broth was too strong. 
um, mm. which I took as a compliment. I don't think she meant it as a compliment, but I still took it as a compliment. <laughs> uh, I've been getting into some Korean cooking, but like I really love Chinese cooking. Actually, uh, before we got into this, I was going to let you know that um, I made dandan noodles for the first time last week. And when you talk about the amount of work it takes to make some of these dishes, man, that is a recipe that takes quite a bit of work. Like preparing the components all separately, cooking the noodles, and then putting it together is is a chore. I mean, it's something I'm going to try to do again, but like, you know, it's not something you can throw together on like a Monday night where, you know, I'm craving some Szechuan cuisine. Let's rock this dish together, right? Delicious. You know, when I was thinking about my parents coming home and where they're going, I think it also gave me a moment to reflect on what that meant. Because like, yes, I do take them to dim sum. And they most certainly will do that. But I was thinking to myself, what else do we normally eat once they come home? Because like I said, there's a huge diversity and I want to focus on sort of like one specific style of cuisine that I grew up with because it's what my parents grew up with. So my parents are from Hong Kong. Um, my dad originally from Shanghai. And I think my mom's side of the family, I think my mom was born in Hong Kong, but her side of the family sort of comes from like the coastal area of mainland China. Okay. But growing up in Hong Kong in, you know, the, the like essentially end of six, like at, at end of the 50s into the 60s, that is still under British imperial rule during that time. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of British um, and Western influences in Hong Kong, of which then emerged the style of cuisine that's just kind of called like Hong Kong style food, mm -hmm. which is like Western food, but prepared in a Chinese style. So, you know, we have macaroni and we have pasta and we have- Wait, 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 wait. Coffee. So, so, so what is a Hong Kong style of macaroni? It is literally, and I, I, it's funny, I grew up with this and I didn't realize it was very much like a Hong Kong style thing. So it's just plain macaroni, plain macaroni boiled with um, peas and carrots, like the diced peas and carrots, some ham, and then you eat it with white pepper. Interesting. Is it like and comfort food? Like, is this a recipe that you really dig? Um, I thought it was a little bit plain growing up, but I also grew up with the opportunity of getting treated to macaroni and cheese every so often, right? Because I am Canadian born. So once I was introduced to mac and cheese, the idea of plain macaroni just wasn't as appealing anymore. But I wonder if there's a way I, to a way to commit some fusion. Like that could be the next level of Canadian Chinese cuisine, finding a way to get KD and it could be like HKKD, huh? huh? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. And then like, you know, our pasta is usually a lot like it's prepared. Our spaghetti is prepared a lot more um, boiled, <laughs> like it's not al dente. It's very, very okay, soft. So I grew up with very soft pasta. And then they it's a much more watery um, tomato sauce. But that was actually how they ate their pasta. And then there's Hong Kong style milk tea, which is tea with a bunch of milk in it sometimes even condensed milk but and you know like that's how they consume their tea and that's how often they consume their coffee and that's a very specific style of cuisine of which there are cafes all over scarborough markham to um enjoy that style of food so i think that's something my parents will come back to there's obviously going to be all the mr kanji and kanji queens um out there they're going <laughs> well i, I guess that's it like with all the at, things. as we get to the end of the end of the segment here though like mm. like what's the what's the pinnacle like, what's the number one thing? Like, when I get off the plane, when I go back to Saskatchewan, I go straight to the Italian Star Deli to get a sandwich. What's the number one for your parents when they get off the plane that you're going to take them out to eat that is, like, the essential, you know, like, I guess, the Toronto-based Hong Kong delicacy that they need to gravitate to? 
Well, the funny part is, is like they're going to eat that for breakfast. It's very much a breakfast style food, but like okay. for dinner, it's going to be probably congee queen or Mr. Congee. Um, with a whole, you know, where you can get congee with all the different fixings and Shanghai style stir fried noodles is probably what we're going to get them. And then we'll finish off with dessert because there's like a rise. Um, for those of you who haven't seen sugar marmalade or uh, crop up and around, you should look one up because they basically carry every single kind of Chinese dessert out there from the more modern ones to the very traditional ones, which usually are a little bit more herbaceous. Uh, a few years ago, you know, there was like one in first marketplace, maybe. And they definitely didn't have anything in English. And then when Sugar, Marmula Sugar Marmalade as a franchise opened up, it like opened the world. It's like how, you know, when Cha Time opened the world up to bubble tea, Sugar Marmalade opens the world up to Chinese desserts. Well, you know, I'm going to make some time to check that out. I love talking about Chinese food with you and, and your background, Maroki, just because it's something I'm trying really hard to learn about. But it is really hard to find English resources to learn more about authentic i'm using that word again but like you know i guess traditional let's use the word traditional hong kong cuisine like it's just really hard to find good english resources to work with mm -hmm. coming up after the break this is actually a really good way to segue because when you go to a lot of these restaurants you can't tell them that you eat vegetarian or vegan right like you know like a lot of times you're like i'm dare lactose intolerant they're like you go to chinese restaurant they're like we don't care what, <laughs> how do we how do we how do we substitute dairy out but I wanted to chat a little bit about what we think about restaurants that don't do substitutions. This is Tasting Together on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. I'm Andre Pru, your Maroki Tong. This is Tasting Together. And one of my favorite restaurants in Toronto is Taroni. And one of the things Taroni is really well known for, Baroki, is the fact that they won't do substitutions for anything on their menu. And I think at first it was just sort of like, oh, this is like really fancy that they won't do this. But, you know, on the other hand, they make pizza. Like how many places, pizza places are there in Toronto that you can't customize what you get on your pizza? You know what? As you ask me this question, I'm not sure. And I actually didn't realize that Teroni doesn't do substitutions. Um, having gone to it a few times myself, and I definitely have gone to Teroni back in the day when I had a more kind of temperamental stomach. Yeah. And so either I carefully picked the menu items that wouldn't affect me, or I've just never needed to substitute. Um, it's, it was one of those questions that came up for me this past weekend. I'm still in the States um, with Eric's family. So excuse my sound quality, folks, if you guys are wondering why I sound a little bit echoey this weekend. I am on a remote setup, but we went out for, you know, uh, Eric's birthday on the weekend and the restaurant had some Easter specials going on and they very much were like, we do not do substitutions. And on one hand, I completely understand, right? Especially for specials. It's not like you're bringing in an, a, whole bunch of, a whole bunch of alternatives and they are substituting on their regular menu. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it's like, you know, it's, it's that question, you know, you talk to me about the pizza. It's like, are we not taking in, you know, as a hospitality industry, are we not taking into consideration everyone's needs and desires? Or are we as consumers disrespecting restaurants when we substitute? And perhaps a good example is, you know, there's a few family friends of mine who definitely say they like their steak well cooked with ketchup. 
<laughs> you know, I, I I love that we're unpacking unpacking this topic because like it's a thing too. Where when I when I throw dinner parties, I like to make sure people are comfortable in my house. So, um, you know, I am a reformed maker funner of vegans. I think uh, in my younger days when I was getting into food and into cuisine, uh, the vegan jokes would roll out of my mouth like no tomorrow. And now the thing is, you know, it's it's just like it, it didn't make me. Uh, I guess a fancier person. It didn't mean that my taste in cuisine was better. It just made me kind of a jerk, you know. Mm. And, and and which is which is the cool thing about like and and the fascinating thing about having this about like disrespecting the kitchen and and the full on culture because like I love visiting France. When you go to France, if you order a steak, they don't ask you how you want your steak done. They mm. they just serve it to you uh, medium rare on the rarer side of medium rare. Uh, and when I was in France last summer, I got to joke with some of the waiters because my wife was pregnant. Uh, when you're pregnant, you can't eat or you're not supposed to eat rare meat. So, you know, I would, I would ex- have to explain to the waiter, my wife is pregnant. Will you cook the steak more? Send my apologies to the chef and to the cow. And I usually got a chuckle out of it, made a, a, a joke about it. But like, no one, no one got bent out of shape about that. Like, there was a reason mm-hmm. for it. And, and you're talking about, like, accommodating as opposed to being dogmatic about the lack of substitutions, right? Yeah, I think it's like trying to figure out where you draw the line, right? Just before the break, I was literally saying, if you go to most Chinese restaurants, they will likely scratch their head when you talk about substitutions and there is a a japanese comedian her name is atsuko okatsuka and she makes this whole joke about how i think like it was her her mother or grandmother said that she is now gluten intolerant and she was upset because she's like i didn't realize this what happened to my people Uh (laughs) and i think a lot of chinese people are the same way it's like we eat what we eat growing up and you know, the idea of being gluten intolerant or lactose intolerant is just not a thing. Now, now that being said, you know, in China, there wasn't, you know, people didn't like, like the concept of eating dairy and gluten is, it's like a pretty recent thing. So mm-hmm. it's also one of those, it's not like they needed to ever talk about being lactose intolerant mm-hmm. in a restaurant because it's not something they consume very often. So I think it's that question of, if you are, if you have intolerances, if you have allergies and you still want to enjoy a night out, is it fair to ask the kitchen to accommodate or do you just sort of have to accept that the places you go to will be severely limited? But I think that's it though. You vote with your dollars. And I think the other side of the coin, like there's there's being accommodating. I have a few friends who are legitimately gluten-free, who have celiac disease where it will make them very ill if they eat uh, if they eat gluten, if they eat um, like wheat products, and you know, I'll, I'll apologize. Like when I have my celiac friends come over, I usually just ask them if, like, when I'm preparing a meal, can you eat this? Can you not? And, and I'm I'm happy to make the accommodation. Anyways, that's just the aside. I'm just I don't want to say something wrong about celiac because I'm not a doctor and blah blah blah. I, I, I try, mm-hmm. Anyways, um, I think a lot of kitchens in Toronto, and I think worldwide, are, are just at the point where there's sort of that Gwyneth Paltrow effect. And I have no issues throwing her under the bus with a lot of the nonsense that she peddles where when it's trendy to, you know, poo-poo on gluten or it's trendy to follow a keto diet and and following trends as opposed to legitimate health problems, you know, when chefs are doing their menu planning, it's just frustrating when you deal with a torrent of ignorant customers who are just trying to follow a trend. Because when you're dealing with legitimate food allergies, like there's a health and safety issue to go with that. And, you know, when the reality is that you just don't like something, it can just be very, I guess, I I think it's just 
the, the frustration of dealing with disingenuine people that's a little frustrating for people who work in the hospitality industry. That's my that's sense. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. And I think it's one of those, I think, you know, I think there might be a difference between needing to accommodate a specific health need and trying to accommodate someone's preferences where at that point you wonder why that person might have attended that restaurant in the first place, right? I think there's been some like, you know, I think there's been some like reviews by customers who pan Michelin star restaurants saying like the portions are too small and it was overpriced for the, you know, for such a small portion. And, and people have roasted those reviewers being like, um, that's not necessarily what you're paying for. You're not going into like a Michelin star restaurant to eat like, you know, a mountain of ever ending pasta. You're here for an experience. You're here for tantalizing your taste buds. You're here for art, right? It's like if you don't you don't go into a gallery and go, well, you know, I'd like that sculpture more if maybe I cut this arm off. Or like, I'd love this painting more and maybe I'd pay for it if I could, you know, adjust like the paint on this one side of the painting. You, you know, I think that's the thing though where like I, I sort of talk out of both sides of my mouth with Taroni. I love Taroni. I think they make some of the best pizza in the city. Uh, and now that I reminisce about this, when we talked about pizza a few weeks ago, I neglected to mention them on my list. Um, but, y you know, is it just, do I know what I'm signing up for walking into that restaurant? Because it's one of the things that they, they put in black and white right in front of you that you know there's going to be no substitutions walking in there. And if, if you're A, a picky eater, or B, someone that has an allergy, and, you know, I think, I'm not sure if they accommodate allergies or not. I imagine they would, like I said, because of health and safety reasons. We can follow up on that later. But it's just like, you know, it's it's just are are they jerks for having such a hard policy, or is it the other way around? They're being polite by giving you the heads up of what you're signing up for when you set foot in the restaurant. I mean, I suppose there's always going to be some people who are going to think they're jerks, right? And as you said, some you know we pay, we show our loyalty with our dollars, and whether it is a necessity that someone doesn't go out to eat, or someone just decides they don't like the restaurant because they think they're too snobby, snooty, gatekeepy you know, they're going to be fine. Well, there's probably going to be another whole audience base that goes, you know what, like kudos to you for standing up for your craftsmanship and we're going to frequent your restaurant and accept what you put in front of us without any complaint. And I'm sure there's a lot of customers who follow that mindset, right? There's probably going to be people out there who's like, no, like we respect the chef and what they think is best for our palates and we want them to give us our experience and we're ready for it. And the other people who don't like it, we can leave. There's going to be always two sides, like two different parties for it. Yeah. I think that's a great place that we can, we can end this year. And if I can do a quick segue that a non sequitur, Maroki, do you have a favorite restaurant in Toronto? I feel like that is a loaded question and you should have given me a lot more prep time before coming up with an answer. <laughs> so the short answer is probably not. I have several. All right. Well, do you have a restaurant that you love so much that you would make a movie about it? Do you, Andre? Do you have a restaurant that you want to make a movie about? I do not. But coming up in the next segment, we're going to meet someone who has done that exact thing. That there is a restaurant in Toronto that this director loves so much that he has put together a short film on. So stick around. We're going to chat a little bit with the director after the break on 640 Toronto. This is Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Well, Andre Pru, it looks like summer is sneaking up around us, even though spring has barely just started. Um, I'm not holding out hope, though. I'm just expecting <laughs> snow to come back because that's what Canada does to us. You know, Maroki, it's one of my favorite memes that's been floating around for like a decade that talks about the seasons in Canada where it's like, 
first spring, fool spring, mud season. I'm I'm convinced that we're at the mud season and we're on to summer. But yeah, it definitely crept up on us. But um, I guess I've got a question for you. I know you live in a in a condo, but um, are you a year round barbecue fan? I am, but mostly in my dreams. Okay. You know, like it's one of those things that I, I think people talk about it a lot. And the idea of winter grilling is super cool. And I have had the opportunity to grill at a cottage right around the start of March this year as the snow is melting. But um, I, I think we've discussed this before, Andre. You know, I'm not too much of a chef, yes. but I've learned after grilling at the cottage this weekend that I really like my fire. So I think I guess if you can convince <laughs> me with fire, I will be convinced to cook. I am definitely someone who likes to play with uh, fire. And the question about year-round barbecuing is this one of my flexes being a prairie boy. I have fond memories of shoveling a path to the barbecue in minus 40. But, you know, we talked about the spring weather coming up. Um, it's April 16th tomorrow. And I'm going to be celebrating all things barbecue. Uh, I'm doing my first brisket smoke of the year with my trusty Traeger. And then as soon as the meat comes off the smoker, I am going to be uh, turning on Firemasters, which is going to air at 7 p.m. on the Food Network, the new premiere. And uh, going all in on the barbecue theme, we're actually joined by the host, uh, Chef Dylan Benoit. Hey, Dylan, how's it going? Hey, guys, how are you? So, Dylan, I... I like I said, I'm a huge Food Network junkie. Um, <laughs> Andre's made fun of me a few times. I, I watch basically every single show um, as long as it comes up and especially competition ones. So when Firemasters came around, uh, especially knowing that it's you know coming from Food Network Canada, it definitely tickled my fancy. Um, I would love to hear you know from your words a little bit about the show, especially because the the chefs not only, compete against each other but then they have to compete against the, a judge in the final round and i was like man that's some glutton for punishment right there absolutely you know uh, in in most traditional cooking shows um the the chefs have to compete against uh the other competitors and the clock those are sort of the two components that they're up against whereas in firemasters they they still have to compete against those two elements but then they also have the element of fire and uh, they have the element of the judge in the final round. So it's, uh, it's a very, very intense competition for sure. And uh, the chefs have, have a lot on their plate, no pun intended, uh, when they come to the Firemasters Arena. I, I remember when I, when I saw that format, I thought it was, like I said, both super cool and both really challenging. But I think it's great because it gives the judges an opportunity to really kind of like roll up their sleeves and get in the game as well so that's super cool um i want to roll right into some of the questions about barbecuing um with you i know i know andre has a plethora of things as you can tell he's the <laughs> grill master he would definitely defeat me in fire master competing um but for me so dylan you know i'm a torontonian through and through i live in a little box in the sky and when it comes to grilling for me i basically have to share a grill either on a, in a the terrace like the common space or where i'm actually allowed to have a tiny tiny barbecue on my balcony which i haven't I invested in yet I, I will fully admit but some goals for the future what are some tips that you would have to ensure a great barbecue when space is at a premium so you know it's hard to kind of get the largest brisket and put on a grill and smoke it for hours or maybe you have you know you don't want to shuttle too many ingredients from place to place because i would have to travel several floors to use the common space barbecue yeah i mean like anything else you have to work within the confines of the equipment that you have or the tools that are at your disposal right so if you have a small grill 
and it's uh, either electric or you know propane um, natural gas uh, type of grill, then you're likely not going to do a, a whole brisket. You know, you, for for that you need something that's got a larger capacity, um, the ability to do uh, off um, uh, indirect heat, right? So your heat source is on one side, and your and your brisket or your meters on another side. So you know, if you if you only have access to a small grill. Uh, or your grill is relatively far away, like multiple floors, as you said, then you might want to focus on things that are more of like a hot and fast cook, like steaks, chicken breasts or chicken legs, uh, you know, fish, that type of stuff where you can heat the grill up a couple minutes on each side and then you're then you're back to the kitchen to uh, finish plating and, and serve up whatever sides you're dealing with. Um, you, with. With grilling in general, particularly when you're dealing with live fire and charcoal, you know, there's already enough happening. You don't want to overwhelm yourself with doing too much. And that's something that, you know, a, a lot of people tend to do in the Firemasters arena as well, to drop back to the show. Every, a lot of people try and do too many things. Whereas, you know, with, with food in general, I, I tend to believe that doing less and, and focusing on the, the quality of fewer ingredients uh, ends up with a better product than doing many, many things kind of half-assed. I love that. I think that's really great advice. Like one of my favorite stories I love to tell people is um, when I was dating my wife, who's um, a pastry chef. I'm sure everyone in the audience is sick of hearing that part. But I was trying to make the perfect hamburger. And it was at the point where I was having like 10, 15, like it was the KFC, like secret herbs and spices in my meat. And I couldn't understand why the burgers weren't tasting any better. My wife looked at me and just said, hey, why don't you just try some salt on some really good beef? And I've never yeah. looked back. And it's the same thing. That brisket that's going on the smoker tomorrow is going to be just salt and pepper. Um, and I guess yeah. speaking of the of the the brisket that I'm cooking tomorrow, do you see any um, up and coming trends that a home cook might want to keep an eye on that is existing in the in the pro world? Like I know pellet smokers are sort of huge right now. And when I got my Traeger, I I thought for sure this was going to be a flash in the pan trend. But when you walk into a Home Depot, a Lowe's, or a Rona, like you have literally a choice of like 15 20 different pellet smokers what's next absolutely you know um i, I don't know what's next to be honest otherwise mm. i would be uh i'd be rushing to invest that's always the thing right <laughs> getting ahead of the curve uh but um you know i th i'm really glad that the smoker trend uh, ended up not being a trend you know and, and it's here to stay because properly used and and if you learn how to 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 maneuver those um those uh, machines properly they can add so much flavor to dishes that you you know i've already been cooking whether it's uh, briskets or or you know even cold smoking fish or you know adding a little bit of smoke to to uh, chicken one of the things we do at our butcher shop at, at carnivore we take whole ribeyes or strip loins season them with our housemates uh steak spice and then cold smoke them for about 45 minutes oh wow um, and in caveman you're never really doing a proper cold smoke because you know it's 34 degrees outside um but what that means is i turn the, the smoker on high get it smoking and then turn the heat off and put the meat in and uh and leave it for about 45 minutes maybe an hour and then take it out and the, the meat is still raw and then we slice it into steaks and sell it as a smoked uh, ribeye or smoked strip loin. So you cook it just like a regular steak, but if you live in an apartment um, like Maroki, then you know you, you can cook it in a pan and it still tastes like it was cooked on an open fire. You know, So there are some really cool tricks that you can use to 
to get a ton of flavor into your food when you have access to things like smokers. Yeah, I, I mean, you just talked about uh, what sounds like a delicious steak that you sell. Um, I guess since we're talking about both Meroki's small space and maybe my my like slightly larger backyard, what's some advice you would give to cooks on how to cook the perfect steak? The biggest thing with, with cooking steak, I always tell people is, um, the biggest mistake a lot of people make is, uh, first of all, they cook a steak right from the fridge. They'll take it out of the fridge, put some salt on it, throw it on the grill. Um, this is a, a big no-no in my eyes because uh, what you're doing is taking something that's super cold and introducing it to an environment that's very, very hot. Uh, so what I always tell people is take your steak out about 45 minutes to an hour, depending on the thickness, um, out of the fridge, season it uh, aggressively. I like to use the term aggressive seasoning or, uh, or liberal seasoning um, and let it sit on the counter unwrapped or on a plate or whatever for about 45 minutes to an hour. And what you're doing is you're allowing that meat to come up to room temperature. Uh, so then when you introduce it to the grill, not only uh, is there less of a, a temperature contrast between the, the product and the environment, but then your meat is also going to cook more evenly all the way through. Um, so I'm sure we've all had steaks where, you know, it's supposed to be medium rare, but on the top, it's uh, on the outside, it's like, well done, medium, well, medium, little bit of medium rare, and then it starts going well done again. And a lot of the time, that's because the heat had to be so hot on the outside to get it to the to the to medium rare in the middle. Um, you end up with all these sort of like a, the the rainbow of temperatures all the way through. Mm. Whereas I, if you I, have your sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just gonna say I'm taking so many notes right now because I'm pretty sure I did throw a steak on the grill fresh out of the fridge. <laughs> recently, yeah, so. no, no. So if you season it and leave it out for about half an hour, well, depending on the thickness of the steak. So if it's you know, half an inch or less, you could probably do with half an hour. If it's three quarters of an inch to an inch or more, then you would go 45 minutes to an hour. But if you throw it uh, onto the grill after it's already, we call that tempered when it's at room temperature. If you've, you've tempered your steak and you throw it on the grill, you're going to have a more even cook all the way through, uh, which ends in a, a much better product at the end. That's the first thing that a lot of people, it's not that they they doing it wrong, they just don't know to do that, right? People yeah. think, oh, I'm not going to leave my meat out on the counter for an hour. They're, they're a little bit freaked out. But I promise you throw a bunch of salt on it, leave it for half an hour to an hour, and you're going to end up with a way better steak when it comes off the grill. The second right. thing that people absolutely must do is rest the steak or, or chicken or pork or whatever you're grilling. You have to rest it after it comes off. Um, I know we've all been somewhere and, and uh, it had a steak and then you slice into it and all the moisture, all the juice from the inside just kind of pools onto your plate. Um, and that's because the steak has come off. It's still too hot and it needs time to relax. Because when you're cooking uh, a steak or any piece of meat for that matter, on a molecular level, that heat is getting the, the, um, the atoms inside really agitated and they start moving around. They start moving really, really quickly. So once you take your meat off the grill, that allows time for those molecules to like slow down and go back into, um, relax back into the place where they're supposed to be set. And then when you cut into your meat, all that moisture stays inside the meat and doesn't end up on your plate. I have watched far enough Food Network competition shows to know that tip at least. So I feel a little bit smart. Good. <laughs> Good. Um, Good. So one final question. Yeah, one final question for you as we wrap up the segment here. Um, one thing I really enjoy watching about Firemasters is, you know, we talk, we've talked a lot about meat and we definitely love our meat on the grill, but the competition I've seen it, you know, you guys like do desserts, you guys do vegetables. And so I love yeah. the incorporation of other 
food elements and seeing what the grill can do to it. So I would want to know if you have any like awesome vegan or vegetarian recipes off the grill that everyone has got to try this year. Absolutely. I mean, we all know meat is good on the grill, but vegetables also lend themselves so fantastically to smoke, fire, char, all of these things. So one of my favorite things to do for a, a, just an easy side um, is to either smoke or roast a cauliflower, a whole cauliflower head. So you hit it with a bit of oil, uh, season it really well, and then try and char it up as much as possible. Um, and then you can cook it indirect or throw it in the smoker so that it gets tender. And then from there, um, I make this sort of vinaigrette, almost like a vinaigrette uh, sauce that you kind of marinate it in afterwards. So it kind of pickles, a little red wine vinegar, some oregano garlic, a little Dijon mustard, uh, some oil. You can throw a bunch of fresh herbs in there as well, like mint and parsley and dill, you know, try and really bulk up the flavor of, of and the freshness of this. So once the cauliflower is cooked, you cut the florets off into whatever size seems reasonable, marinate it in this, um, in this vinaigrette, and then throw a whole bunch of fresh herbs in there, serve that on the side. It's fantastic for a barbecue. Uh, you, it goes great with chicken, fish, pork, steak. You can make it the day ahead and, and serve it the next day, so it's super easy. You know, that kind of stuff is is really great on a grill. And, uh, you know, even things like in Canada, especially corn on the cob, grilled corn, you know, it's classic. Mm. Everybody does grilled corn on the cob in the summer. And, and don't get me wrong, some nice, beautiful Ontario corn rolled in a bit of butter with some salt. I mean, it doesn't need anything else than that. Right but on. if you're feeling a little bit uh, like you want to go outside the box, what, what I like to do is um, either Mexican-style street corn or a Mexican-style street corn salad. So grill up the, the cobs of corn, and then you can slice the kernels off and mix it with you know, uh, some pickled jalapenos, um, red onion, lots of cilantro, lime, black beans, and kind of make this grilled corn salsa. Put that on top of some lettuce with a little lime and jalapeno dressing, some cotilla cheese or, or feta if you don't have access to cotilla. It's not authentic, but it's a close similar um, um, option if you don't have access to something like cotilla or a Mexican crumbly cheese. And then, uh, and then take a bag of tortillas or the leftovers from your tortillas, all those crumbs in the bottom, crush them up and sprinkle that over the top of the salad. And you've got a really fresh, summery Mexican street corn salad. You know, So taking those ingredients that everybody's familiar with and just preparing them in a, in a slightly different way, there's so much that can be done on the grill and, and summertime's the perfect time to do all these things. Wow, Chef. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to give us all these great uh, summer tips. Uh, I guess, in my case, year-round tips, but especially some uh, great yeah. ideas to make vegetables more exciting on the grill. Uh, so thank you so much for giving us the time. Yeah, you're most welcome. That's Chef Dylan Benoit, the host of Firemasters. The premiere is going to be tomorrow, April 16th at 7 p.m. on Food Network Canada. I'll be watching. Maroki will be watching. And when we come back from the break, we are going to talk about why that bottle of champagne you think is champagne is not actually champagne. To pair with your grilled vegetables. So stick around. We'll be right back after the break on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I'm Andre Pru. I'm joined by Maroki Tong, and now we are joined by Danny Longo of the Global Newsroom, which means it's the time of uh, tasting together when we get into the world of beverage. But I'm going to throw right to you, Maroki, because you had, uh, I guess, sort of a question that you wanted to present to Danny and I for us to unpack here. 
Oh man, is it a question or is it a rant, Andre? Because I'm pretty sure you could tell from my show notes that I have a lot of opinions about this particular segment. Well, I'm just kind of curious about what was the the precipice for this because it's just one of those things where, you know, I looked at it and it's like, do people still do this? Like, you know, Wayne's World came out, what, like 30 years ago where... Uh, you know, Rob Lowe's character, Benjamin, explained... Oh, wait, 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 hold it, hold it, because now we need to throw to Danny and see whether he does this or not. Oh, actually, that's a good call. Right? It's a test. Okay, sorry, Danny, we're testing you in this moment. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Danny? Yes? Do you call all sparkling wine champagne? No, I do not. Do no, you I do not. Do you but know the difference? Do you know the, difference? know the difference? Yes. I mean, okay. the difference is fairly simple. If it's not made in the Champagne region, it's not Champagne. Right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, Andre, finish your story about Wayne's World. Oh, I mean, Danny kind of took took care of it. Like, <laughs> Rob Lowe's character takes to schooling uh, Mike Myers' character, Wayne, about, you know, calling all sparkling wine Champagne. And basically, I, I think it's a bit of a subtle dig at Americans <laughs> because... Even Rob Lowe's character is just like, yeah, Americans are too stupid to know the difference between sparkling wine and champagne. So, you know, the fact that that took place like 30 years ago, you think that I think most millennials grew up loving that movie should know the difference between champagne and Prosecco and a few other things, right? Well, see, like, this is why, and you know, we've had holidays over this last weekend and during holiday season, people tend to want to pull out sparkling wines. And this is not the first time I've experienced this, but it's like yet another time where I'm like, Oh my God, I didn't realize that we still need to continue this conversation because every time something celebratory, whether it was like the, you know, the birth of another small human within the family, everyone's like, Oh, we have a bottle of champagne in the fridge and we're going to pop it. And then, you know, I'm making commentary of like, Okay, make sure we don't mix it with mimosa or whatever, you know. And then they're like, whoa, maybe we should mix it with mimosas. I'm like, no, 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 you shouldn't mix champagne with mimosa. And then I realize it's Prosecco. Mm. And I I always feel like such a snob when I'm all of a sudden being like, okay, guys, like, let's have a conversation about how Prosecco or how Charmat is different than champagne and how champagne and traditional method sparkling. Like, you know what I mean? Like, You know, Mar- Maroki, I-, I want you to get into exactly where you're going to go with this but i think the listeners should know by now that uh, i generally wear the moniker of the resident snob out of the three of us when it comes to our wine drinking habits but the what you're about to dissect for the listeners is very important because i think the best way to compare this would be if we're talking about the food world it would be like calling all peppers the same thing and I'm not talking about like red, green, yellow peppers. I'm saying like if we're talking about jalapeno and scotch bonnet. If we just said, oh, the recipe calls for a cup of diced peppers. And you went to the store and picked up a cup of jalapeno peppers or a cup of scotch bonnet peppers. Your food's going to taste a hell of a lot different and be very different than if you just mixed up the colors of peppers. So mm-hmm. this is this does feel a little bit snobby. But you don't have to be an expert in wine to know that these are very different. And Maroki, I think you're about to unpack that for us. Yes. And I think it's also very important for our listeners because I think it helps, you know, with making buying decisions in a store and that you're not necessarily, you know, maybe it helps you know what you're asking for as well. And yes, so so let's dive into it. So number one, champagne, as Danny said, is only called champagne if it comes from the champagne region of France. So that's the easy one. Yes. Prosecco is a sparkling wine from the Prosecco region of Italy, and you wouldn't call it Prosecco unless it came from Prosecco. 
The two are made in two very different methods. Champagne is made in what is called traditional method, méthode traditionnelle, if you want to do it in French, um, where the second fermentation, which is the fermentation that makes the bubbles, occurs in the bottle. So they actually put a little bit of like sugar inside the bottle after first fermentation. They plug it up, and when it ferments, it makes um, it makes bubbles. I think it's really important that when we're talking about premium sparkling wines, we're not talking about making pop. Like you know, I think a lot of us have soda streams at home. You know, really premium winemaking, you're not just adding CO2. You're not artificially adding carbon dioxide to a wine to give the bubbles, Like, which is why we're having this discussion, even though it is very snobby and snotty. <laughs> it's important to know these differences, right? It is important because it does impact, you know, how much money you would spend on a bottle of wine. Charmat style wines typically are at a more affordable price point because it is made in a larger format. It's not as difficult to make and not as difficult to control as traditional method. Um, and then to throw, you know, another, I guess, like another wrench into the mix, there's also a method now people have been, people are sort of in the wine scene. Maybe they're starting to see things called pet nap on the market. Mm -hmm. um, it is made as what is called ancestral method, where actually the wine is capped before fermentation completes. So there's still a little bit of sugar left and it finishes fermenting inside the bottle. So it only ferments once. And in that single fermentation, it creates bubbles. And usually they're a little bit funkier just because, you know, the wine doesn't go through like filtering and, and fining because they're capping it right at the fermentation process. Yeah, I think you're starting to see these pop on the, pun intended, pop onto the shelves of the LCBO. I mean, the other thing too, that's kind of funny about Ancestral is if we're talking about the whole history of winemaking, Ancestral style of sparkling wines i mean it's called that ancestral means like anciently it's it's the original way of making sparkling wine mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so i've gone on my little pedestal and i've said all my little piece danny when when people like come to you and they say you know i oh, i don't know i brought some champagne and it's prosecco or whatever like how do you normally try and educate them this is a tough one because if someone brings a bottle of champagne, usually I think they'll know that it's champagne because they bought it from the champagne section of the LCBO. But if they just bring a bottle of sparkling, I mean, you just say, okay, this is not champagne. It's just a bottle of sparkling. But, you know, we've discussed this before with Ontario sparkling wines, and they can be just as good as champagnes. Oh, definitely. Yes. yes. I think for me, the ones where it gets me is I once heard, <laughs> I'm about to throw the LCBO under the bus here, I once heard a fellow come into the LCBO, ask for champagne, was led to the champagne section, was quite stunned by the cost because most champagnes will start, you know, in the yeah. $70 to $80 bottle range outside of a very select few. Yeah. And what he, you know, he realized probably in that moment that what he didn't really want was champagne. He just wanted something sparkling, but he didn't know, right? He didn't know that he's asking for sparkling wine. He just wants champagne. So the consultant led them to the Prosecco section and said, this is the champagne of Italy. And I heard him and I was like, no, don't say that. They're all going to think that it's all the same thing. And that, I think, it does a disservice to both Prosecco and Champagne or traditional method sparkling and Charmette's method sparkling because they do taste distinctly different. Yes, very much so. Okay, so I have a question. So the, the sparkling wines that you would buy from somewhere like Ontario or even a California, they're using these same methods, correct? Well, I mean, that's the thing is, uh, I think anyone who's in the car right now, if you go to the LCBO and take a look at a sparkling wine from Ontario or a sparkling wine from California, you will see somewhere on the bottle that says Method Traditionnel. And if it says Method Traditionnel, that means that the wine was made 
using the champagne style technique where you've added a little bit of sugar and let the bu- the bubbles come into the wine in the bottle. Now, the reason why these wines generally cost a little bit more money than Prosecco is simply like not just technique, but also time in real estate. So the, the fermentation that takes place in Prosecco, you can harvest Prosecco and have a batch ready to go in a year. There aren't any rules really with how long you need to keep Prosecco in a tank before you can sell it. With traditional method wines, because you're doing the fermentation in bottle, it takes a lot of real estate to have all those bottles in a warehouse getting those delicious bubbles. And also it's a general hallmark of high quality traditional method sparkling wine, how long these bottles sit in the producer's facility before they go to the market. Like recently we had Stratus in Niagara last year release or a couple of years ago now release a bottle of sparkling wine that had been in their production facility for 10 years. The whole thought process is longer time in the cellar helps to le- deliver more complex flavors. And I mean, if you go to the LCB, take a look at a bottle of Dom Perignon, like Dom Perignon is a, is a champagne that spends 10 years being made often before it's released to the market. So that's what you're paying for when you're paying the champagne prices. And and maybe that's why I care so much because the last thing I want is to bring my bottles of really nice champagne or traditional method sparkling to a party and have it blended into a mimosa. <laughs> Although, you know, mimosa with Dom Perignon, I think there's few things quite as baller as that. My wallet is not ready for that yet. My wallet <laughs> is not ready to treat Dom Perignon so casually. Well, Maroki, I think next week you're going to be back in uh, the Toronto area, right? I am. I am. Danny, thanks again for taking the time to join us to unpack this super nerdy conversation this week. Absolutely. I learned a lot. Thank you both. Well, how people in the car learned a lot. If you want to learn more, you can always follow us on social media at Andre Wine Review at Nine Ounces, please, for Maroki. And uh, stay tuned. Five o'clock next week, we will be unpacking more delicious eats on Tasting Together, 640 Toronto.